This is Superfood Sundays, a plant-based podcast with Chef Lynette. My father was a very traditional family doctor in a farm town in South Jersey. Mm-hmm. And when he started practicing, he did everything from delivering babies to even if his patients had needed surgery, he would actually assist the surgeon. So he would be in the OR with all of his patients when they needed a surgery for most things. He also made house calls. And I used to carry his black doctor's bag when we went to these farmhouses down really remote dirt roads and went to see grandma who wasn't feeling well upstairs. And it was just a very magical moment for me because I just seeing the whole process of going into someone's house where everyone was worried and seeing the level of relief after my father would go into his black bag that I was carrying. And of course, they all reacted really in such an amazing way when I would come in with the black bag. And it was just really magical. And so that really got me interested in medicine. And it was amazing during those times. If people couldn't pay in those days, it was fine. There was no issue. They would they would drop off some peaches or tomatoes that they grew and so we always had a lot of fresh vegetables and fruits and certainly that was really instrumental in in cultivating a appreciation for fresh fruits and vegetables that really persists to this day in addition to just understanding the impact of healthy food and diet on lifestyle and health i know a lot of times once we get a bit older and we have more control over our diets, our day-to-day might change. So how much since you've been a child has that changed or has it changed really drastically? Yeah, definitely I eat healthier than we did. I was a kid in the 80s and 90s, and certainly we ate foods that people ate in the 80s and 90s with sugary breakfast cereals and such. But I will say that as I was growing up, because We had so many amazing farms around my father's practice. For a significant part of the year, we bought our vegetables from just stands on the side of the road that people would put out the fresh fruits and vegetables that they were growing. And so I definitely ate more than your average, more fruits and vegetables and had appreciation for the flavors of those than other people, than my friends, let's say. (laughs) And so I think ultimately... If you're eating those things, your palate develops an appreciation that some people don't have, that they need to develop. And so as people start to change their diet, they really have to understand that it can take several weeks once you get rid of processed sugars and artificial flavors in your diet to really get an incredible level of appreciation for berries and fruits and vegetables. A lot of people's palates have been damaged by all the artificial things in foods. So you have to give your palate time to come back to the way it was designed to be, which is really God-given that we are meant to appreciate and enjoy these fruits and vegetables in ways that, that a lot of people don't even have an acknowledgement of. They just don't get it because the palate's been essentially poisoned. It's The palate's like a thermostat. And the thermostat to detect the level of flavors can be messed up, pushed up because of all these fake flavors and too much sugar and salt and fat that's been combined and all these artificial sweeteners, so much so that getting to this level of really delicate, nuanced appreciation of just natural foods can be a problem. Yeah, absolutely. I like to compare it as a computer when I'm speaking with, especially parents, the tongue, it's like a computer and what you're putting the program in for your child and for yourself is what the preference is. And yes, those nuances later on down the line that 
it definitely takes a while to be able to change that. I saw a quote that you posted on Twitter, something in relation to doctors teaching lifestyle takes about three to four hours over several visits and that basically that's not really happening. Yeah, I've counted, unfortunately, I've counted the number of patients that are interested in doing some sort of lifestyle intervention. And some people like to hear about it, but among the people who really take me up on it, it's really only around one in 200 patients. It's a very small amount because as much as doctors are conditioned to prescribe a pill, patients are conditioned to ask for a pill. So the problem goes both ways. My job, I think, when I'm seeing patients is if there's a lifestyle alternative, and there usually is, I let them know, but most people aren't interested in making those substantial lifestyle changes. And among those that do, it, it takes many hours of conversation and of study on their part to, to really get it. You know, I always hear people on social media, influent doctors slash influencers or whatever, just say it's not that difficult that just eat real food, but it's not good enough advice because when it comes down to the practical aspects of living in a family and where not everyone else necessarily is going to be making those changes, it takes a lot of understanding and education to, to until you really get what you need to do. People know what to eat, but in order to implement that into your lifestyle in terms of what to do when you go out and how you're going to handle snacking and all these sorts of things, it takes several hours of education. Yeah. And it's just one of, thankfully, there are podcasts like yours and such where people can learn some of these things. So that can be part of those couple hours. Yeah, definitely. Food is tradition. It's culture. It's convenience. It's emotion. It's all of these things that are running, again, in the background that make these decisions on whether or not you're even interested in doing it in the first place. And I think that's what people don't realize. And I also think that social media has a tendency to almost trivialize, oh, it's just going to take 21 days. It's, no, <laughs> it's, yeah. yeah, but no. That might be one, one particular little habit. It's mm. such a combination of different things that need to be understood. I know you have a quote, you control your glow and you are a proponent of smart labs and genetic testing. Are there things within that that are helpful for people to be able to maybe make a jump start with it? Yes, I think there's a lot of, when you're talking about advanced diagnostics and all these new lab tests that are available, you get a lot of pushback from conventional medicine because it's not necessarily tied to a diagnosis so much so that, in other words, you're not going to get the lab and then say, oh, you have X disease that carries this code for reimbursement, et cetera. So it's hard for conventional medicine to fit these diagnostics because, again, you're not getting a specific diagnosis. What I find valuable about these tests, for example, micronutrient testing, where you can see the levels of your vitamins and of your essential fatty acids. What's valuable in that is that you can see maybe where you're missing certain things. Again, it might not show that you have a specific disease, but it shows what might be missing. The same thing goes with what's called nutrigenomics, which is something that, that I like to do, which is mm. you know, where you look at people's genetics to see what kind of diet might be ideal for them. Maybe they have a tendency to need more omega-3s. They have a genetic tendency that they need to ingest more omega-3s in their final, in their long chain form, in fish, for example. Okay. Um, 
So these sorts of things, again, you're not going to get a diagnosis, but it, it can give people a little bit more motivation to say, okay, I have a better understanding of myself. I see where I'm missing certain things. And just seeing that on paper sometimes gives people more strength to be able to make the changes that are required because it's something that they can look at. I can mention that all day long, but until they see it on paper, that in and of itself is motivation enough sometimes to make certain changes. Absolutely. We love to quantify, we love to analyze, or not even loving to quantify or analyze, but just the right in the ability and the license to be able to do that with different tools. So I think that's definitely spot on and super helpful. So your background is lifestyle medicine and dermatology, which is definitely different from you growing up with your father who <laughs> helping surgeons deliver babies. What push you yeah. into that direction? I found dermatology in medical school, obviously, and I like the combination of procedures and seeing patients of all age ranges. And I'm also very visual, so I like the aspect of making diagnoses based on subtleties of color and texture and the different types of eruptions and such. And I also like the fact that you get to interact with people throughout their life. And also sometimes it's an indicator of what's going on the inside. It's not uncommon for dermatologists to, to make diagnoses of internal conditions based on what's going on in the skin. And to me, that, that was like very fascinating to me that, that an internal condition can manifest on the outside first, in a sense. And then in 2004, I had a patient by the name of Karen who had lupus and she had really horrendous lupus. And I had her on all kinds of horrific medications, mm -hmm. like tr transplant medicines. And I really feared for what I was going to do. I felt I was scared I was going to kill her with the medications, but nothing was working. And unfortunately, I couldn't get it under control. And I took her off the medicines and she disappeared for four or five months. And when she came back, she was completely clear. And it was really one of the most miraculous things I've ever seen in my career. And I asked her what she did, and she told me that she changed her lifestyle, and she handed me several books and several journal articles, and she really was the introduction for me to get into lifestyle medicine. And when I read what she sent, what she gave me, it was in the journals. It just It's not necessarily in the main dermatology journals, but it's there, and the science is pretty strong. And when I got into that and saw the power of making these changes, then I started to get into lifestyle medicine. And again, talking to pretty much all my patients when they come in with a systemic, a full body disease, which things like psoriasis and eczema and various other autoimmune diseases and such, there are lifestyle things that you can do that can, in like Karen's case, completely reverse her lupus. And that is miraculous to me. And I, that really changed sort of the trajectory of how I view medicine. Wow. So in a way, you're just integrating the lifestyle medicine into the actual dermatology. So it's now just working in lockstep with each other? Yeah, two ways. Since I have Miracle Noodle as a company, I meet a lot of different people, whether that's other business owners or people who read things that I write on the Miracle Noodle website who reach out and I do lifestyle medicine consultations with them. So in addition, I don't see patients as often as I used to because of Miracle Noodle, but when I do, I try to integrate. And then on the side of that, I have 
people who come to me based on meeting them or them reading something that I wrote or something of that sort. I want to dig a little bit more into the dermatology from just a nutritional aspect, and then I want to definitely move into Miracle Noodle. But when it comes to just the skin, we know that is literally the largest organ. And I think about cause and prevention. Are there some different ingredients, different foods? Obviously, each person is different. We just talked about nutrigenomics and the different testing. But are there general things that people can really lean into that will help to prevent and then also obviously foods and different things that would actually add to the cause of different skin issues in specific you mentioned eczema and psoriasis I feel like those are a really big thing especially that happens a lot with children so a lot of parents are really concerned about that as well I think that we could start say with psoriasis is a full body essentially autoimmune disease that is seen much more common in people who are overweight and have generally high levels of inflammation in the body. That's recent. Over the last five to 10 years, it's been shown that people with a great deal of psoriasis on their skin also have inflammation in the aorta and into the heart. And as a result, they these people with psoriasis have a decreased lifespan because of that by up to 10 years as a result of this inflammation. And so with full body inflammation that's happening, there's a whole lot of things in the diet that contribute to that. And of course, having elevated blood sugar and eating processed foods are certainly going to be top of the list to predispose. If you're already predisposed to psoriasis, because there is there is a genetic component, if you can reduce that risk by making sure that you're eating plant-based sort of Mediterranean lifestyle type of diet with lots of fruits and vegetables, then you're going to lower that overall just body-wide level of inflammation, and that's going to help the psoriasis pretty substantially. But that needs to be done in combination with a pretty significant amount of getting to your optimal body weight and such. There, Of course, there are people that are at their ideal body weight that have psoriasis, but the rates of psoriasis go up pretty significantly as people gain weight and have what's basically called metabolic syndrome, where they have high blood sugar and high triglycerides and high blood pressure and obesity, all these things put together make psoriasis come out a lot more, even if you're genetically predisposed to it. So all the things that are going to help with that, which really encompasses everything from stress reduction to to diet and just general living a sort of an anti-inflammatory lifestyle. Things like acne. Acne is one of those things that is unknown in some populations around the world. Really? Completely unknown. Yeah, there's several in South America. They found several groups of people that are still eating basically their traditional diets. Have and There's virtually no acne whatsoever. So the things that contribute to acne are anything that make your blood sugar go up. So white rice, white flour, all dairy products for the most part. And these, when you get rid of those, you know, and you're conscious of your blood sugar, acne even if there's a hormonal component to acne, can can improve pretty substantially. But to get a 15 or a 16-year-old to change their diet, let's say, is very difficult, of course. But for women and men who have adult acne, there's no question that making sure that you are conscious of dairy and blood sugar is going to make a huge impact. For men who have acne that I see, if they're like in their 40s or 50s and they have acne, it's almost like when I can convince them to, to change their diet, it's like a complete cure for adult <laughs> men. 
Adult women, it's a little bit more difficult, but they definitely improve if they get rid of dairy. For whatever reason, dairy is a very difficult one for a lot of people to give up because it has an addictive quality Jeez, to it. Dairy is, addi- is yeah. addictive. They've got, yes. You see the brain scans. It's like, boom. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. I have so much trouble getting especially women to to get rid of cheese and if they have adult acne you got to get rid of cheese you just got to get rid of dairy there is some data to show that just full fat normal fat yogurt is probably okay there are a few studies that show that but cheese and milk forget it it's really Dairy doesn't have all that many redeeming factors, quite frankly. It was interesting because I had some skin issues and uh, I was in a test for PCOS, polycystic ovarian Mm -hmm. syndrome, and it came back to where I didn't have it so full blown, but it was enough to where I should probably be aware of my hormonal levels. And I started to take a route from Southeast Asia called Peraria marifica, and Mm -hmm. it is one of the highest form of plant-based estrogen and I started taking this yeah I started taking it about six years ago they say the queens used to take it and then also just for more modern times men who can't afford hormone replacement if they're transitioning they use this because of the estrogen and what it does for me is that it's a plumping aspect to my skin and then also Mm -hmm. I just don't get these certain types of pimples that I used to get. I just really don't. Yeah. It's it. You're like taking notes. (laughs) Yeah. I'll have to look that up. I've never heard of that. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. The other thing I recommend in those circumstances is to up your cruciferous vegetable intake because that can actually balance out one of the one of the estrogen metabolites. So that's another thing I recommend. But I'll, I'll def- I'm glad you mentioned that. I've never heard of that, so I'll take a look into that. Yeah, I'll definitely send it to you. So a lot of times you'll find it you'll find it mixed with something else. There's not too many places that just have it straight up. I had one more note that I wanted to talk about that I know that a lot of people would be interested in, which is hyperpigmentation. So I do get pimples sometimes, and sometimes they're really gnarly, and I try not to do things that make it worse but I do sometimes and you get the pimples and hyperpigmentation and for darker skin that's really a big thing are there things nutritionally or even topically because I know a lot of skincare they say oh okay if you can eat it you can put on your skin so are there some things that people can really tap into yeah so it, it hyperpigmentation is definitely one of the most difficult things to to take care of the most important thing beyond anything else is to get adequate light protection and so much so that You have to realize that even the light inside, if you're darker skinned and there's a little bit of inflammation in the skin, can cause the cells that make color to kick out a little bit more pigment than it's used to. So above and beyond everything, you need to have a good sun protection, even if you're not going outside. That means that you're either going to use a zinc-based sunblock or something with iron oxide in it. The reason that iron oxide is good, and there are more and more products coming out with a little bit of iron oxide in them, is because it, it, it protects a little bit more of the light spectrum. And most doctors, dermatologists that specialize, and doctors that specialize in hyperpigmentation, they're recommending that iron oxide be used a lot more. The skin has a good potential to to repair itself but if it's consistently getting light that is that it's sensitive to it's going to make it last a lot longer so you can have for example people who have what's called melasma if they're Mm. used to call it the mask of pregnancy or you can get it just without having pregnancy or if you're on birth control 
people don't realize, but for those people who get that, you can be doing fine and then one day walk to your car without adequate sun protection and you could have lost six months worth of improvement just walking to your car. So the first and most important thing is to make sure that you're consistently wearing a sunblock every day and every, almost every day and every night. Now, how do you do that? There are lots of moisturizers now that include a little bit of zinc in them. One is called CeraVe. You can find it pretty much anywhere. And essentially, the it, CeraVe is a good moisturizer because it has what's called ceramides, which are what your skin naturally makes to moisturize. And you want to have a little bit of that or you can buy a foundation that has iron oxide in it. Iron oxide has a pigment, so it's it can be a little bit dark. But if you're darker skinned, you can tolerate it, of course, a lot better than someone who is pasty, white, very white. So that's probably the most important thing okay. by far. Okay. And then internally, you know, what's really helpful? I, I know antioxidants are really helpful, but are there any things internally that could help? Yeah. I recommend for a, a lot of people, not just for hyperpigmentation, but there's something called fern extract, which can increase the resistance of your skin to ultraviolet light. Mm. And you can find that as, it's a supplement. There are lots of brands that make it. There's one that I like in particular called, it's a company called Life Extension. They're down here in Florida and they combine it with niacinamide, which is a type of vitamin B3. And that can help your skin to repair itself a little bit easy quicker so they combine the niacinamide with the fern extract and i find that combination good but if you're eating lots of pigmented fruit berries and fruits that's always going to be helpful and of course generally just having an anti-inflammatory diet is always going to be helpful definitely that's a great segue into really the big thing here with our conversation which is your brand how i met you at the plant-based expo miracle noodle miracle noodle i found miracle noodle Gosh, a few years ago in Ralph's and for me working in health and wellness and food and plant-based, I'm always on the lookout for things that I could find at Ralph's. And for those that are not necessarily in the California area, basically a grocery store that's owned by Kroger (laughs) is an easy way to be able to put it. Because a lot of times people think about lifestyle change and diet change. And the first thing is, oh my gosh, I have to go to Whole Foods or I have to go to this one crunchy granola vegan store or just one of those things where it's again people like to hear good news about their bad habits so for me finding ingredients that I could share with the community and for myself in the mainstream grocery stores I'm like this is fantastic I'd love for you to share the story on how that came about I know that you also started with your family which is great I want to get into that but yeah tell us yeah I basically was on a trip to Japan and I was visiting a friend there and she took me to a Buddhist vegetarian restaurant outside the city of Kyoto and they gave me this big bowl of noodles and they told me essentially the noodles had no calories and no carbohydrates and I couldn't believe it I thought it was a miracle that's why I called it miracle (laughs) noodle (laughs) and basically when I saw the product and they explained to me that it was invented by Buddhist monks like literally over a thousand years ago And it's always been known to be beneficial for the gut. And I realized that here was something that my patients could use. I initially thought that it would be great as what I called the transitional food, a food that people could eat while they were learning those four hours to, to, to fill the cravings and not feel like they're missing out. And what we realized pretty quickly, I came back and I started the business with my family 
pretty quickly realized that people were just enjoying it for what it was as a pasta alter pasta or noodle alternative and that this was something that people could add to their diets that is not high starch so it's going to lower their overall glycemic load in their diet and that's great for the majority of the population that is basically not capable of handling a lot of starch and not feel like they are enjoy continue to enjoy the food that they're eating loves noodles and pasta and now we have a rice as well and if you can have those without having to worry about all the starch and the calories and still enjoy what's essentially a comfort food experience of eating that those things with whatever your favorite sauces are and we'll have our favorite sauces on noodles and pasta you can do that with miracle noodle without a problem and still enjoy the food that you're eating yeah you guys got so much it's so exciting and you keep coming out with new things angel hair fettuccine the rice, spaghetti. So it definitely checks all the boxes. And one of the things that I've learned with food and with getting people to transition or incorporate is that we eat so much with our eyes. And if it just looks remotely like what we're used to, that's already signaling to the brain of some sort of satisfaction. It looks like pasta. Okay, it's got the texture of pasta. Okay, this will definitely work. And that's in, you, again, like you said, add the sauce and you're halfway there. I think that a lot of people aren't exactly educated on what the actual main ingredient is. And could you explain a little bit about konjac? Sure. The noodle itself is 97% water and 3% plant fiber. And the plant fiber is from a plant called the konjac plant. And the konjac plant has been known in Asia for over 2,000 years. In fact, it was used as a medicinal in China going back more than 2,000 years. I've met just recently, actually, we, I connected with a woman from China who is from an area of China where they grow, where they've grown the plant for forever. And, you know, it's a very traditional part of their diet. And it, as I said, goes back what, thousands and thousands of years. The fiber that is in this particular plant is the chemical name for it is called glucomannan. And it's basically a type of fiber that is a, first of all, it's one of the most potent prebiotic fibers, which means that it feeds the natural bacteria in the gut. And it's, it holds a lot of water as well. That's why the noodle is 97% water. Mm -hmm. And so in addition to this sort of prebiotic effect, you're also getting a good amount of water as well. And we know now that actually water that's in that's bound up in vegetables or vegetable fibers is actually more hydrating to the body than water that you just drink out of the tap. Yeah, wow. it's it's uh, mind blown. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There's an interesting. I guess you would call him. I don't know. He's, he was a scientist. His name was Gerald Pollack, and he described that there are different phases of water. And there was a really great book that sort of went into this called Quench. Okay. It talks about the overriding message that here is that when water is in a is bound to fiber it basically has a different structure to it and is is basically taken up by the cells of the body in a different way wow. than if you just drank water it's really fascinating that's just a small part of the noodle but it's an interesting thing also obviously the fiber is beneficial because it's going to help lower blood sugar and if they've done studies with the fiber on its own as like a fiber supplement just okay. two grams, and you certainly get two grams eating the noodles. And just eating the just eating that amount of this particular fiber 
people lose a significant amount of weight. They, their cholesterol goes down because the fiber can help bind the cholesterol in the gut, lowers blood sugar. And so it, it's like getting the benefits of plant fiber in the form of eating pasta. So what could be better than that? Wow. Wow. When you first, quote unquote, brought this to the mainstream, to the United States. What are some of the things more on the business perspective? Because we've got a lot of food founders and people starting smaller food businesses that listen in. How was that kind of bringing bringing that bringing it to the mainstream? Because obviously, with planning, uh, we started so, on. <laughs> it could get yeah, tricky. we started online. That's really the best way. Look, it's so quick and easy to get a, a website up. And initially, because I was seeing it in the beginning as a medical food in the sense, because you know, I was coming at it from a doctor's point of view. And we were at the time sort of targeting people who maybe they had recently told they were pre-diabetic or various things like that. But I think trying to find, know who your audience is and then just marketing to them through your online store is really the best way to, to start. Wow. Okay. That's a good, that's a good thing. It's not like how it used to be where you got to really get out there and pound the pavement. Can you tell us about just really just your distribution? Where can people find it and you know, how easy they can find? I feel like it's everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, we're, we're probably in around 18 or 19,000 stores nationwide, a mix of natural and conventional, but we're in Whole Foods and Sprouts and several of the Kroger brands like Ralph's and we're in, we're in some, a good amount of the Walmarts, not all of them, but probably a thousand of them. So we're in probably over 90% of natural grocery stores. So best ways just to look up the store locator on miraclenoodle.com, but certainly you're within a couple miles of a store that has it. Definitely. And you guys got an incredible website. It's free shipping on all orders. It is very easy for people to just get it right to their front door, obviously. When it comes to recipes, what was one of the first recipes that you really started that that really stuck with you? I would love to hear some use cases from you, your family members, or some unexpected things from customers and chefs. Yeah, we we had a lot of success at sh- at trade shows with with sesame noodles using tahini, lemon juice, garlic, shredded carrots, and shredded bell pepper mixed together. My mouth's watering just thinking about <laughs> it. And we still make that at shows, and that does very well for us for people to taste the product. Definitely. We also do a spaghetti marinara. The key to using our noodle versus using regular pasta is. That with regular pasta, you can pour the sauce on top of the noodles with the pasta. With ours, you really have to cook it in the sauce. So mm-hmm. you want to basically let it sit in the in cooking in the sauce for a good five minutes so that it absorbs the flavors. Stir fries are super easy. So like a Singapore noodle, like Singapore rice noodle, except our, you're not getting the starch from rice noodles. And the noodle is basically indestructible in the sense that you can't overcook it. So I always tell people that you can add the noodles right when you're adding the aromatics. So you're sauteing your garlic and your onions and your ginger, let them sit in there for a little bit. And then before you would add, say, the other vegetables, add the noodles first and then just keep adding things to your stir fry. But the noodles go in right after the aromatics and then just keep on cooking those noodles with the the veggies and the sauces that you put in after that. And it really comes out incredible. Yeah. With the Miracle Rice, we we always do a rice and beans, like a black beans and rice. There's something about the beans that gives the Miracle Rice more of a starchy-like 
flavor, I guess, or sensation. And so rice and beans works incredibly well. And same thing goes, you want to get the rice because the noodles, rice and the noodles are 97% water. You really want to cook it really good with the black beans and onions and garlic and such for a good amount of time, again, to get it nice and dry and to get that fluffy texture. Miracle rice I use in soups or stews. I just throw it in. It That's the easiest thing you can do. And it bulks up the stew or the soup. And it's almost it almost is like little like pastini noodles almost. Mm-hmm. And so I like that. And I whenever I make soups, I always put the I always put the rice in. That's just my personal thing. So I probably have a few bags of that per week. It just bulks things up and it makes you feel full. And and you don't get, because you're not getting those blood sugar spikes, your energy level is going to be a lot better. A lot of people don't grasp the energy devastating effects of blood sugar irregularities. They don't even, they really don't grasp how much of their energy level is affected by these wide swings of blood sugar that, that, Unfortunately, the majority of the U.S. population has. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, it's nice to be able to have something that is going to keep your blood sugar pretty steady. So there's an additional advantage to having the noodles and the miracle rice. That's interesting you say that because I had written down a topic that we could talk about. It was literally just insulin versus blood sugar. And so you just tapped into that. <laughs> yeah. I think it's something like 82% or something of the American population is basically metabolically inflexible, which basically means that they're not capable of switching from burning sugar to burning fat readily, which means ultimately that that you are in a situation where if your blood sugar drops – your energy level is going to drop even more than it's going to drop significantly because your body is not capable of switching on burning fat to to get energy. So people feel incredibly ill and then they have to eat more. So in order, unless you correct that capability of burning sugar and burning fat, if you, if your blood sugar goes low or you haven't eaten, you start to burn fat, you liberate fat you get fatty acids and ketones and such to to power your body but the like i said it's something like over 80 percent of the american population basically is incapable of doing that the way the human body is supposed to do that and that's really a significant problem but when it comes to speaking about blood sugar and insulin that is one of the tests that is not something that most doc most doctors most general doctors order, which is a fasting insulin level. And the reason that a fasting insulin level is important is because that often precedes getting higher blood sugar, which means that you might go and you're and the doc can get your blood sugar yearly and the doctor says essentially your your blood sugar is okay. That doesn't mean though that you aren't in the first stages of prediabetes. And what people don't realize is that prediabetes it's not like you are, you're getting damaged when you're pre-diabetic. It's not one day your pre-diabetes is nothing and then all of a sudden you're, you have diabetes and then you're starting to suffer damage. During pre-diabetes, you suffer damage. So if you're in the beginning stages of that, most of the time your insulin level is already elevated. So it's one of those tests that, that I like to get. Oh, that's great because I was thinking like, okay, 
I don't want to hop back into this, but if we could chat about that would be great. And it was a perfect segue. One of my favorite ways of restoring this metabolic flexibility is doing what's called a fasting mimicking diet, which is basically a five-day reduced calorie diet that basically mimics the effects of a fast, but you get to eat food. And that often restores this metabolic flexibility. And there are companies that sell kits that, you know, yeah. but that's, that's very effective. Obviously, if you are not eating healthy and then you switch to eating perfectly healthy, then, you know, that will also restore that, but it can take, it can take time. Yeah, it's interesting. I heard him speak at the first fasting summit at USC a couple of years ago. I don't think they've had it again, but it was really informative because I've practiced fasting. I'm really into it and I suggest it for a lot of people. And I've suggested prolong to people. And again, like you said before, it's another habit. I think the biggest thing when it comes to that, I would say intermittent fasting seems to be the most successful for people that yeah. I've spoken with and worked with, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think implementing that would be helpful for sure. Also, because yeah. no a lot of times, it. like products, I feel like products and protocols, that's when things get a little bit tricky for people to adopt. Where it's like with your intermittent fasting, obviously the hallmarks of it is okay. Don't eat for this many hours. That's really e- that's a that's such an easy starting point for people to do. Just don't eat for this Agreed. window. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, agree. Yeah, it's very easy. It's definitely a good start. Wow, this is this has definitely been great. I've learned a lot, which is part of the reason why I do these because I want to learn and keep <laughs> learning from super smart people. I've, Likewise. But yeah, you were a fan of hydroponic growing. Um, yeah, and microgreens. And microgreens. We've got a lettuce grow tower. Oh, works. you do? Yeah. Yeah, we work with lettuce grow and it's it's a That's very great. it's a very interesting it's an interesting thing. I've had one for about a year and a half in cycling through different plants and it's you get more than what you think you're going to get. That's for sure. That is for sure. That's why I love people to try microgreens because what you can grow in a week, seven to 10 days is just astounding. Like just, it really is, it's miraculous. You can have a humongous bowl of fresh, I like pea shoots because you get so much out of them and they're so tasty and like literally within seven to 10 days, it's just a massive amount of vegetables that you hardly need anything except for water. It's, it's really miraculous. It's so miraculous. In fact, to me that it almost feels like it feels like a gift. It's incredible. And if you, it takes minutes per day. And if you're not used to getting, there's something really special about cutting, harvesting fresh greens. They're like brimming with life and it's so fantastic. It's so yeah, fantastic. I, I, I just wish more people would get into it because it's the easiest way to really feel the power of fresh vegetables. And as you're on a sort of a health journey or whatever you want to call it, you become more attuned to to really more and more subtle things about eating certain foods that your body becomes so much more sensitive to and appreciative of and detecting like just, I don't know, like life force energy Definitely. from these things. And Definitely. It's something I just wish it convinced more people to do. It's becoming more and more, I think, obviously the cost effectiveness. Very cost effective. And just that initial investment, I think once people get past that initial investment for Grow Tower, then from is really fantastic. And I'm so excited that you mentioned pea in specific for your microgreens because that is such a... 
it's such a protein packed thing. And I don't think people realize like how powerful and how nutrient dense sprouts and microgreens are. If you incorporate those into your salads, your smoothies and everything, I think pea is what 26% protein, something just like wild where you're like, wow. Yeah, I'm sure. This yeah. Is just it's, so yeah. I make it, I used to, I, whenever I'm in Chinatown in San Francisco, I always, they serve pea shoots. It's like a specialty of the menu, like sauteed pea shoots. So I make it, I do like a light stir fry. You can juice them. You can, you can put them in smoothies. You can eat them in a salad. It's, it, and you get so much. It's ridiculous it's, how much volume. you. It's so much. Have you heard of the Brava oven? No. Okay. I'll have to send you something on that. So we met them in September at Dave Asprey's biohacking conference that he does. It's basically a smart oven. It's about the size of a larger microwave. And literally this thing has changed my kitchen and it's cooking with light and it cooks, it bakes, it sears, it dehydrates, it reheats, it slow cooks. It cooks the most wow. incredible, perfect rice. I'm like looking at my Instapot, like, I think you might be out of here. It does everything. It does everything, and it's got an incredible app, and there's a lot of recipes that are being built. You can, It's got a camera inside that you can literally watch what's happening if you're not at home yet or anything along the lines huh. of that. Is it, it a countertop oven or yes. is it a full oven? Yes, it's it a is counter, countertop. Yes, it's a countertop smart oven. Wow. It is fantastic. It I is, can't wait to look into it. It's fantastic. My um, oven just broke last week, so maybe I just need to buy one of those and not even replace my oven. Yeah, it's good. This has been super awesome. One of the great things about the pod that I love that it's so much about wellness so that you can you have the license to move into a little bit of woo-woo. So I love to hear what our guest's woo-woo is. And that could go from anything from running to meditating. But those things, that thing that you do on a regular basis that just really helps to balance you, ground you, inspire you, all of those good things. What's your woo-woo, doctor? One of, the, one of the things I didn't touch on is that I spent around 14 years studying with a doctor in New York. His name was, he passed away a couple of years ago. His name was Dr. Gerald Epstein. Mm -hmm. And he was, he, was, he was trained as a psychiatrist. And he, he basically met a woman in Jerusalem who, within meeting her, within the first couple of minutes of meeting her, basically had an illuminative experience where his body turned into a body of light and she taught a technique called mental imagery which she learned from her family going all the way back to king david sort of a very jewish mystical path okay. of, that basically was is just using your imagination as a tool for perception and it's a very simple a simple therapy where it's like a guided visualization, but it's very quick. It's a 20 to 30 second exercise. And she would have people who traveled, her name was Colette Moscat, and she had people travel from all around the world to, to this little house on a side street in Jerusalem to be healed of all kinds of different things. And she had secular people come and religious people come. And she was really such a amazing woman that my my teacher gave up his psychiatric practice and studied with her for eight years. And when I met Jerry, Dr. Epstein, he, I studied with him and learned this technique for, for 14 years, basically, on and off, going back to New York and such. So the technique's called mental imagery, and that's, I incorporate that into my medical practice as well. Wow. 
Wow. That's, it's interesting because I feel like that might be something I've been tapping into and just didn't know the name. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it, a lot of different cultures have, and yeah, it's not an uncommon type of practice. I guess the difference between this and a guided visualization and such is that as you continue to do the technique, a narrative develops mm. where a store, a sort of a story develops and you use your imagination because we all think in images, even if we don't realize that we're thinking in images. And images are the language of your mind. And when you get a, when you start to grasp what, what is going on from an image perspective in your mind, you're able to communicate to yourself at a much deeper level. And if you develop this facility and doing these exercises on a regular basis, then, then you really, are able to connect to your deeper self in a much easier way because you can communicate in the language of Learn more at superfoodschool.org.